It's old timey crimey. I'm Christy. And I'm Amber. And we are here with your crimes from yesteryear. Because true crime is always better in black and white. Or sepia. Sepia is good too. This one's from black and white. Yeah. It's more from the black and white days than the sepia days. Before we get started, first of all, I just want to give out a shout out to a wonderful listener who got in touch with us this past week, Kelsey. She and I have been emailing back and forth. She's offered research help. She's so nice. (laughs) I like her. (laughs) So I just wanted to say hi to Kelsey because she shares a lot of our interests, obviously, since she listens to us. (laughs) All the time. So go figure. And so uh, we're very happy to have listeners like Kelsey and to have listeners like all of you. If you ever want to get in touch, oldtimeycrimey at gmail.com, and the link is always in the show notes. Hey, you remember when I was like, the links are on some places, but not others. In other places, it's plain text. It's websites. On Spotify's like website, you can't see the links. It's just plain text, but on their app, you can. Ah. So if you're looking for links, use an app and not a website. It's like the same with Stitcher. It's so weird. So yes, uh, and some of our listeners are wonderful patrons, and we would love to have more of you join us over on the Patreon. That's patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey. We give you five bonus episodes a month for only $5 a month. And Amber today told me a story that you will have never heard on any other podcast that I'm aware of. Did you check other podcasts? I know you check like wikis and stuff, but it would show up in a search too. Yeah, there was almost nothing in the search. I was on like Bing. So like <laughs> nothing came up hardly at all except for just yeah, the actual jury selection. Mm-hmm. It was, it was nuts how little was covered. Yeah. Yeah. Amber dug in for a story that you're not going to hear anywhere else about a woman whose birthday happens to be on the very day that that episode will have published, will have had published, if you're listening to this in the future present. <laughs> That's not confusing at all. It's like being a time traveler. <laughs> So that episode is going to be published on the 22nd of February, which is Miss Irma Jean's birthday. It would have been her 95th birthday this year. Yes. And so we uh, we all raised a glass to her. And you should come over and join us and raise a glass to Irma and all the other amazing cases that we've covered over there. There is plenty to binge, well over 100 episodes. A few of them shorter, but a lot of them longer, you know. So uh, there's some really, really good stuff there that we think you'll enjoy. And props to Amber for really digging deep down into the archives. Fell down a rabbit hole. Love rabbit holes. Do you want to talk about an absolutely horrible person that everybody's going to hate by the end of this episode? Sure. Okay, yeah, let's do that. So, oh, wait, before we do that, I wanted one more little thing. Uh, Last week, we had uh, the wonderful phrase in one of our sources, treacherous tart. And uh, so hopefully by the time this episode airs, if you go to the merch link in the show notes, you will see a treacherous tart shirt that I have designed and put up. And there's also all kinds of other objects you can get it on. Items like phone cases and laptop sleeves and if you really want your shower curtain to say treacherous tart, sure. Why not? Honestly, well, why not? I kind of want mine to. And I'm going to make it in a couple different colors. I just have to screw around more with transparencies and red bubble and everything. It's just kind of, uh, I'm getting there, but it should be there by Friday, the day this episode airs. So come on over and check it out. And for the first week, I'm going to set it at 10% off of our normal 
prices for all of our other merch. So if you buy it, you get one week. There's no code or anything. You just buy a treacherous tart item and it should be 10% lower than any of the other items. If you run into any difficulties with that, oldtimeycrimey at gmail.com. Email me and I'll fix it because this is going to be the first time we're really going to do like our own sale on Redbubble, which kind of makes it a little harder to do your own thing. So, okay. Now let's talk about a horrible person. Okay. Okay. So we are going to be talking today about Helen Tiernan. I actually want to start with a, a few items I found that were in the news during uh, the time period of this case. So maybe even some stuff that she might have read in the newspaper. Uh, we're in New York City. And in Brooklyn, at a high school, a district attorney was working on a big case. There were two boys who were convicted of uh, statutory assault charges on a girl. And that, quote, blew the lid off an underworld birth control ring. Oh. An organized commerce by underworld characters in the sale of contraceptives was uncovered. They called it a sex racket, which sounds like a thing that you buy that is somehow related to both tennis and sex. Spanking. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's a sex racket. It's a sex racket. And they said it, at one single high school, in one single week, this underground condom ring, which sounds funny because condoms are already ring-shaped, uh, sold more than 600 birth control devices, which had to have been condoms. Yeah. Well, heaven forbid people want to wear a rubber. Yeah. Right? Exactly. God forbid our 16-year-old should not be getting pregnant. We can't have that. So that was 1937. That same month, two boys found $5,000 in counterfeit $1 bills in the Hudson River. That, of course, was confiscated by the police. That's about $98,000 today. And kind of genius that it was ones, because nobody ever checks those. Exactly. There was a man who managed to get just a suspended sentence for keeping two sheep and ten goats on the first floor of his Clinton Avenue apartment. How big was that apartment? I don't know. He and his wife lived on the second floor. and um, The sheep and goats were on the... Yeah, yeah. Okay. They basically had a stable on the first floor, apartment on the second, as you do. Okay. And by the time court came around, the family had moved everything out to a farm in New Jersey, so they were able to get a lighter, you know, suspended sentence and not have to serve time or pay a huge fine. And then they could tend to their... Their poor landlord. I mean... Two sheep and ten goats. Goats, sheep are pretty calm. Goats are troublemakers. I mean, I love them. I and want a goat. eat everything. Like, yeah. I'm just imagining that, like, all the baseboards, all the corners of the walls have been eaten by these goats. I'm imagining them eating the wool off the sheep. That too, yeah. <laughs> yeah just, just chomping down, having a nice little lunch of sheep's wool. And just above that article was an update on a murder trial that had just begun in which the defendants, a 17-year-old girl and her, quote, former sweetheart, were on trial for first-degree murder after hacking the girl's mother to death with a hatchet. Wow. That is, um, that's teenagerhood, I guess. I don't know. Thankfully, most of us haven't done that. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, oof. And not long before that, a very well-known event in history, the Hindenburg disaster had absolutely shocked the world. 
The airship caught fire when attempting to land in Manchester Township, New Jersey, and so that was all over the papers. Now, at that time, in May 1937, Helen Tiernan was 26. She lived on West 47th Street in New York City with her two children, Little Helen, so named after herself, who was seven, and Jimmy, five. They lived in a tenement apartment in Hell's Kitchen. It had been a turbulent few years, but just, just eight years ago, everything had seemed so promising, so romantic. Future was bright. I'm going to argue that. Just eight years ago. I'm not saying right at that moment. I'm saying in 1929. I know, but I'm still going to argue that because I, I did get some of Helen's early life. Okay, well, yes. It seemed like she might be going on to better things, maybe for a few minutes at least. Okay, so, so yes. Yeah, we'll get her early life. But, okay. Because she, she had been kind of the girl next door to one James Tiernan when she grew up as Helen Smith. Now... The reason she grew up next to him was actually due to some family trauma in her history. Both of her parents were immigrants. Her father, George, was a machinist from Estonia. Her mother, Anna, was from Finland. And her brother was born two years after Anna. So Anna came along in 1911. And her brother, Albert, came along in 1913. Anna then, quote, suffered a mental collapse which grew steadily worse, which we now know was most likely some sort of postpartum anxiety, depression, psychosis, insert whatever here. It's just, it seems likely that since it happened so soon after a birth, it was probably related to that, although we're not 100% and they weren't 100% because they didn't even think of that as a thing, really. No, not so much. So George put his children in the care of the Wagner family in New Jersey and had Anna committed to the asylum in Central Islip, Long Island. Anna was there for five years before she got out and then she returned to Finland where she passed away. George Smith remarried, but that didn't mean that it was time for a happy home with his kids again. No, I mean, he got rid of them when they were four and two. Yeah. And five years later, they're still not back. Yeah, he has a new wife, but they uh, they stay with the Wagners, apparently. Let's fast forward to the spring of 1929. 17-year-old Helen was living at the Wagners, and she stayed out all night one night. She came mm. home. I knew, right? Scandal. She came home in the morning and told her kind of foster parents that she'd spent the night at a friend's house. Mrs. Wagner was a little bit suspicious and not totally naive, so she looked into this. And she found out that, oh, what a coincidence. James Tiernan next door had also been out all night. Mm-hmm. How strange that those two things lined up. Just what a bizarre coincidence. Very, very odd. Mrs. Wagner told George Smith, and it was agreed that Helen needed to go stay with him. He the father who's been pretty much absent from her life for the past, what, you know, um, 12 years, 13 years. Yeah, he's definitely going to be able to control her. Right. And uh, that went as well as expected. Helen and James eloped two days after she turned 18 on June 30th, 1929. We have 
from a letter he wrote to a friend soon after that marriage, catching him up on his life. He said he had married a blonde-haired, blue-eyed woman named Helen. He worked for Franziers, Inc., which he called one of the biggest fish companies in the world, if not the biggest. He said his position was a good one with lots of potential for advancement, and he made good money. Sources do have him working for the railroad at some point, so it's really uncertain whether that happened kind of in between, whether he lost a job at Franziers, whether Franziers went under. We don't really know, but those are possibilities that exist. He said to his correspondent, an old friend from town, I am in extra fine health, and oh boy, am I enjoying myself. Newlyweds. <laughs> well, you know how you enjoyed yourself and what it means to get someone to love you and take care of you. I am not being sentimental, but that is the way I feel. I am happy. So this does seem like this young romance flourishing has a lot of promise. It has a lot of hope. They're settling down together. They're in that newlywed phase. They're so happy. They are so happy. Helen did start working as a waitress. She got pregnant with Helen and had to quit. And little Helen was born in 1930, exactly nine months after the wedding day. Exactly. Well, and pregnancy is actually 10 months, so, hmm. Yeah, there's, there's a question there, yeah. There's some wiggle room, we could say. <laughs> Maybe some wiggling was going on. So then they had little Jimmy, they named after James, in 1932. Helen had to go back to work after each as they didn't have enough to get by on one income. Then came along June 1933. After only four years of marriage, James was found dead in the home. The cause of death was listed as heart disease. He was 24. Yeah, do you want to call bullshit on that or shall I? I mean, I, it sounds bullshitty. It sounds like a lot of bullshit. Well, and the assistant medical examiner noted that there was blood coming from his nose and mouth. But then said, sudden death, nothing suspicious. So they didn't actually do an autopsy. Well, the case was marked as sudden death, nothing suspicious, no autopsy. But the examiner had was like, there's blood coming out of his nose and mouth. How is this not suspicious? It was very weird. A 24-year-old doesn't drop dead of a heart attack very often. It happens, but not very often. And uh, it's not like it was done for the insurance because there was just enough money to cover the funeral from the insurance that they got. So it wasn't a monetary thing if there was a murder here committed by someone, anyone in particular. Now Helen is left to raise the children in Depression-era New York by herself. She managed to find some work doing embroidery in a dress factory. She was called a fancy seamstress. Fancy. And uh, she, she managed. She made $1,400 a year when working full-time, which is $27,000 today. She paid $6 a month for the children to go to her nursery while she was at work. Uh, that was about $122 a month today. She did get some help from the Child Welfare Board. They gave her a $45 a month allowance, which comes to about $11,000 a year in, in today's money. Now, there was some regulation around this, so she, she did need to be investigated regularly, and the reports came back spotless. The, she fed the kids two quarts of milk per day, and she kept them clean. They were nicely dressed. She even made a point of taking them to a private dentist 
rather than going to a clinic, which was more the norm during that time period, because she felt that they would get better care of their teeth. They did move almost exactly two blocks away from the place where they'd lived when James was alive. It was a three-room, not three-bedroom. Three-room. Three-room, ground-floor, rear apartment, and they paid $20 a month for that, which comes out to about $410 today. So one bedroom and then two other rooms. I don't know if they count the bathroom as a room, but I'm starting to think maybe they did. It was a tenement after all. Yeah, so it might have been a bedroom, a bathroom, and then a main quarter that's the kitchen, dining room, living area. Yeah, essentially. Back when open floor plan didn't mean quite the same thing it means today. No, no, not the same. She did sometimes get behind on the rent, but everybody said she was a hardworking, devoted mother. She was a good woman. I mean, neighbors, coworkers, social services. There was her employer at the dress factory. He, he wasn't really sure what to think of her. He called her a sphinx. He said, quote, she never told anybody anything. She kept everything to herself. But she was a hard worker and honest. She didn't seem to be a cruel woman. She was pleasant to everybody, only didn't want them butting into her affairs. Maybe that's because she wasn't alone for too long. Just a private person. Yeah, she's just keeping herself to herself. Two years after James's death, she met George Christodulis on the subway. He went by George Christie. You love doing this to me, don't you? What? Making me say my own name many yes. times throughout an episode. I mean, I do. at least this isn't as bad as John Christie. That was rough. I felt my honor was being impugned by every single word I said. <laughs> yeah, I think my show notes for that one was, damn it, Christy. <laughs> if they weren't, my show notes should have been, damn it, Amber. So you did that on purpose. I did. So about George Christie. He was an immigrant from Greece. He had once been a boxer and now he worked, it's kind of uncertain, he worked in some capacity in either a cafeteria or a Greek restaurant. It might have been uptown though. He didn't seem to make a lot of money, or at least he said he didn't. Well, could have been both. It was a cafeteria Greek restaurant. There you go. George Christie and Helen Tiernan hooked up, but he was really looking for something more casual than what she was going for. She wanted a husband, and he didn't really want to be a husband at this point in his life, especially not when there were two children that came along with the package. But it was said that he came by sometimes every single night of the week for a little while there. So this was an issue, an ongoing issue in their relationship, that he did not want to settle down with her while she had these children. And so she's trying to find a way around that issue. In spring of 1936, she tried to find another place for the kids, somewhere that would board them and take care of them. It was a little too pricey. All I could find was 5 to $6 a piece, and it wasn't even clear whether that was weekly or what. Daily? Yeah, who knows? One way or the other, she couldn't swing it financially. And so according to the Daily News, she did try to go to the Children's Welfare Board and said, quote, She was discouraged, and she wanted to commit the children. She called several times, pleading that she thought they would be better off in an institution. The child welfare people talked her out of it, because they were convinced her heart wasn't really in the idea, and that all she wanted was to be rid of the responsibility for a while. 
So this is Great Depression time, and it's not uncommon. I mean, there's even pictures of people selling their children because they literally could not afford to feed them. And so they very well could be like, look, I understand your husband is gone. It's just you and the kids, and it's overwhelming, but you still love them so much, and you will really regret this if if you decide to go through with this. You'll change your mind. They'll change your mind. Yep, they're saying you'll change your mind. Now, there was an incident in July 1936 in her apartment. A pot was left on the stove. The pot boiled over, which put out the flame, which was fed by gas. The gas kept running. Now, one way or the other, she wasn't there. There's one story where there's a babysitter there who was a frequent sitter for the kids. She was a neighborhood girl who... Helen Tiernan would have come over and watch the children whenever she needed to to go out during non-nursery times. And then there's another version of the story where it's not necessarily said that the children were left alone, but it's not mentioned that there was a babysitter there. So mm-hmm. it's we don't know one way or the other, but a neighbor smelled the gas, ran in, and saved the children, who he said were near death. They were six and four at the time. So that neighbor still said she was a good woman, even after all that. So it's an accident. Things happen. You know, it's it's hard with kids, especially when you're on your own. You can't be watching them 24-7. And sometimes you forget things. Sometimes you have other things going on. Or if the babysitter was the one there, you know, she was like 17. Maybe got distracted by the children, forgot she was boiling something. Maybe didn't realize the mother set something to boil before she left the house. Also a possibility, yes, yes. So it was thought to be... An accident, and that neighbor continued to say that Helen Tiernan was a good woman. Just kind of kept that thinking. He also later described her for the papers, said she was fairly good looking with a plump figure and dark blonde hair. If this woman is plump, right, then I. She was not plump at all. There are pictures of her in a bikini, and by no means would I call this woman plump. No, absolutely not. And yet, weirdly enough, in one of my forays down Weird Recipe Pages Boulevard, I found recommendations for calorie intake for women. And it said if you had, I'm just taking this from memory from somewhat earlier today. So these were the kind of ranges. If you were, had a very, very sedentary lifestyle, 1,500 to 1,800. If you were doing a little bit more moving, 2,000 to 2,200. And if you were doing a lot of things that required a lot of energy and they gave as examples, uh, doing the laundry and cleaning, then you should be taking in something like 2,200 to 2,500 calories per day. Which I think is still the recommendation and the fact that that has not changed is weird. I think $2,000 would be lovely. Yes, yes, I would like you. to take in $2,000, please. For the laundry? <laughs> yes. I think 2,000 calories is still kind of the norm, but I, I don't really pay a lot of attention to calories. So, anyhow. One thing that happened in 1937 as well was that George Christie bought a car. He wasn't coming around as much. He was busy. Busy getting his life on. Yep, yep. So in May 1937, when all those news stories I mentioned at the top of the episode were a happening. Helen Tiernan had been on sick leave for about two weeks. She did still get pay from the union, and she was getting her tonsils out. She actually said the reason she was getting her tonsils out was because the children had been sick recently, 
and she wanted to get her tonsils out in order to make sure they stayed healthy. It didn't say anything about whether she'd been sick recently. Yeah, it was weird. That was a little strange. Sometime after the surgery, she and George Christie had sort of an argument. She was feeling yucky after the surgery, but she went out to to meet him one night after the kids were in bed. It was a Thursday in mid-May. And he seemed at this point to be really fixated on the idea that they could spend more time together if she just didn't have the kids to worry about. Then comes the weekend, and it's springtime, you know? Flowers are in bloom. The trees are green again. The weather is warm. Airships are plummeting to the ground in flames, and kids are hatcheting their parents to death. You know, spring. Spring. I can't wait for spring and all those things except the last two. (laughs) (laughs) And spring is a wonderful time for a picnic. On Saturday morning, in the middle of May, Helen tells the kids that they're going out to the country for a picnic. And I imagine that they they were very excited. I don't even have to imagine. The newspaper said they were very excited. You know, I imagine little Helen said, you know, she wanted to go pick some flowers and little Jimmy said he was playing with some bugs or maybe they went the other way. Who cares? as long as they're having fun. So the family heads out to Long Island. So they're in this little town called Brookhaven. And late that morning, a woman is seen with two young children and a suitcase heading into the woods. We're going to skip ahead to the next day, over 24 hours later, and I want to emphasize that fact. A May Savage of the town of Brookhaven went for a little walk in the woods on Sunday afternoon, May 16th. It was a mild day. Temperatures were in the upper 50s. It was around 3 p.m. And she wanted to go pick some violets to give to her teacher the next day. How old-timey cute is that? That is really cute. I'm going to go pick some spring violets for my teacher, 16-year-old. So she was in the woods near Yap Hank Avenue. And now known as Old Stump Road. Oh, that's weird. I still saw it as Yap Hank Avenue on the maps, unless I I think I was looking at the right spot. Yeah, it says it's generally known as Old Stump Road. So it might just be like a local kind of colloquialism for a road. Yeah. Yeah, I get it. Instead of flowers, she found a child dead. Almost certainly, she was, she was pretty sure. Clothes partially burned off. So poor May runs home. Her friend Warren is there. She tells him what she saw, and he said, You crazy woman, you must just be imagining things. You probably saw a dead rabbit and thought it was a body. He said dead animal, but I'm making him as silly as possible. Yes. <laughs> for, the, for the purposes of entertainment. You're a woman. Of course you did not see such a thing. Of course not. That would be indelicate. And if you did see it, then why haven't you swooned? (laughs) I demand answers. So they go back out there together, and he's like, oh, yes, that is, in fact, a dead child. Thanks, Warren, for getting on board. For confirming that for me, because I did not know the first time when I told you that's what it was. Dude is mansplaining dead bodies. (laughs) He sure is. (laughs) God. They go into town to get a doctor, tell the police. The body was only 175 feet from the Montauk Highway. That was really highly trafficked, especially on a late spring, early summer weekend when the weather's nice. People are getting out and about. Now, 
I'm pretty sure that the structures that are currently in that vicinity were not there back then because I did see an aerial image of, you know, kind of the general area. But now I can tell you in 2022, the sheriff's office and the county police department were roughly one to two miles from the spot. They're nearby. I don't think they were there then, but it was really hard to tell. I tried to compare the aerial photos to satellite photos from today, and it was just rough. A lot has changed, let's just say that. The child in question was a seven-year-old girl. She had had her throat cut and her body burned, but not enough to destroy it altogether. Pretty much everything, you know, she, she was still... I don't even know how to put this. It was still pretty clear that some bad damage had been done to her, and some of her features were still visible. More people came out, and people from the neighborhood and such. Everyone was searching through the woods for any clues, all these volunteers and people from law enforcement, and even the district attorney's office. And about one and a half hours after May Savage found the little girl, a member of the Suffolk County DA's office finds another child. He immediately assumes this child is dead. He's about 135 feet from the deceased girl. As you could tell from my pronouns, it's a boy. He's also had his throat cut about four inches across. The DA's office employee yelled when he spotted the boy, as any of us would, expecting, you know, this is a second victim who's dead. And then the boy sat up. Which yeah. I'm really surprised there wasn't an obituary for that DA office employee. I imagine he probably screamed like a little girl. I would, and I don't blame him. Little boy sat up. They rushed him to the hospital. A state trooper was going 90 miles per hour to get him there. And it was looking like he might actually make it, which was said to be miraculous. Which is, is pretty impressive. So I do have a description of the girl. She was badly blistered across the shoulders, along her back, and down her legs. She was lying on her stomach when when she was found. And her hands and her eyes and the back of her head all had lacerations. But you could still see that she was wearing a pink dress. She had blonde hair that was bobbed to a medium length. So you could clearly see her features... And it was just her shoulders and her back and the back of her legs that were burned. Mm -hmm. But her face was black, which made investigators at first think that she might have been strangled. That'll, That'll change. But in the meantime, they get this little boy to the hospital. And he does manage to get his name out, Jimmy. But they can't really make out his last name. Is it Keen? Is it Kieran? Kiernan? There's like a couple different options. And he's a kid, you know, he's a little kid. So, you know, speech not fully developed there. They find out from him that he has a sister, Helen. And at that point, they pretty much are assuming that it's her body that was found in the woods. When they asked him to tell them what had happened, he said that he'd gone for a ride with Mama, Daddy, and Joe. Then he really gets their attention when they say, well, okay, Jimmy, who hurt you? And he says, Joe did, and he hurt Mama, too. He said that Joe bought them ice cream and took them into the woods. Then he said, quote, Mama is in the woods yet, as in yet meaning still. Mm -hmm. 
So that sends them rushing back to the woods with even more volunteers. They're expecting to maybe find a parent, maybe two. They don't find any more bodies, but they do find a plethora of clues. There was underbrush around where the bodies had been found that had been caught on fire, but it had rained really recently. Ever tried to catch wood on fire after a rain or even kindling? Not gonna happen. You gotta bring some newspapers and some dryer lint and some Doritos. And they also found a Clorox bottle. It was about a quarter full of gasoline, 75 feet from where the little girl's body had been found, as well as a butcher knife and scissors, each blood-stained, a hatchet head, blood-stained as well, and an empty cracker box. Those last two things they found about a half mile from the body. So these things are just being like dropped and scattered as somebody is maybe running or maybe even just casually sauntering away. Throw this here. Step, step, step. Throw this here. La-di-da. Yeah, it's very, uh, it almost, it's all, it seems casual. Now, as for Helen, the medical examiner at that point said that she had been dead about eight to ten hours before she was found. (sighs) And it's likely that Jimmy got his wound around the same time that she did, and he survived that long. But if you think about it, let's look at what timeline we have here already. It's not exact in what we've told you when the children are arriving in this town, but from later records, we know they arrived at 11.19 a.m. on Saturday. May Savage, the 16-year-old, found the body of little Helen at around 3 p.m. on Sunday. Mm-hmm. Either the medical examiner is incredibly off with his times, which is what I'm really hoping, or poor little Helen was there for a long time before she perished. Those are our, our two options. I'm really hoping for some, just fingers crossed for some medical examiner incompetence. Please, please. I beg yeah, you. I'm, I'm hoping that she went quick and didn't lay there all night barely alive. Yes, it's, it's really, truly terrible. And even the fact that Jimmy survived that long. Incredible. He had scraped knees and bumps on his head. Both of these children are blonde with blue eyes. Amber already said that the girl, Helen, was in a pink dress with bobbed hair, and Jimmy was in a sailor suit, which is so adorable. Mm -hmm. So that night, speaking of adorable, the authorities got 50 Boy Scouts out to search the area with flashlights. This is multiple times I've run into this, both in cases we've covered and in cases I, like, listen to on audiobooks and such and read about. But they're always bringing Boy Scouts out, and they're like, okay, a badge to whoever finds the dead body. (laughs) Bring in the Boy Scouts, guys. Got any blood-stained weapons you found? You can get your blood-stained knife badge. Like, it just seems very macabre to be bringing in boys. Even if they're teenage Boy Scouts, it's still too much. So they have everybody out searching for any further bodies or clues. They also brought out two bloodhounds. It was getting harder and harder to find anything, though, because as soon as word got out about this, all the curious onlookers rushed in. 
And trampled all the fucking evidence. Yep, just running all over the scene, wreaking havoc and being useless. I mean, it's possible if we had been back in that time and didn't know what we know about crime scene preservation, we might have been there I would have been there, yeah. I would have at least been a volunteer and would have tried to do the right thing. (laughs) But if nobody asked me to volunteer, I I, I might have been out there trampling evidence. I'm I'm a curious person. I'm a curious person, too. I probably would have destroyed crime scene evidence. Morbid curiosity is a bitch. Yeah. But you know what? I also feel like I would be pointing things out like, hey, do you guys see that over there? There's there's blood spatter on the leaves. Did you check that area? I bet there's something under there. Exactly. In in all of our morbid curiosity, we would still manage to help. Yes. And this is the thing. Somehow we managed to get into the 1960s before anybody was like, you know, we should maybe like make something, like manufacture something we can put on a perimeter around a crime scene to keep people from coming in. And stealing evidence. I mean, there had been figures in the past, even as early as I think the 1700s, I want to say. It was an episode I did early on in Detectives by the Decade. And the mayor of that town was like, nobody come near this crime scene. We're going to solve this. Actually preserve the freaking crime scene. And still, nobody was like, tape, maybe? Like a rope? (laughs) Stand there and tell them no? Anything? An electric fence? Get a bouncer, for God's sakes. Electric fence would be funny. (laughs) That would be funny, yeah. Now, the initial thoughts of those investigating, quote, District Attorney Hill said tonight that the murderer apparently believed that both children were dead and that he saturated the clothing of both with gasoline covering them with leaves and brush, and set fire to them. The fires went out, however. The little girl crawled a short distance away, and the boy to the spot where he was found. Which, that's that's horrifying in itself, that she was still alive with her throat cut mm-hmm. and on fire. As we'll get into, she'd also been hit in the head as well. Now, we do have some witnesses who saw a woman and two children in the vicinity that day. Let's get into their reports. A local storekeeper said that on Saturday morning, she saw a woman get off the eastbound train in town with a little boy and a little girl. And later, the woman hopped on the train again, still going east, so continuing her journey. Another witness report comes in from Mrs. Moscato, who owned a gas station at the intersection of the Montauk Highway and Yapink Avenue, very close to where the children were found. She saw the woman and two children going down Yapink Avenue and then go into the woods. The boy, she said, quote, was one of the cutest little fellows I had ever seen. He was a cute little fellow. He was, yeah. After about half an hour, Mrs. Moscato reported that the woman came back out of the woods alone. And then we have the brake man on the train who said a woman and two children got on the train at Brooklyn on Saturday morning, then got off at Brookhaven, the stop nearest the site where the children were found, as I said, at 11.19 a.m. He described her as somewhere between 45 and 50. If you'll note, we mentioned um, Helen Tiernan is 26. Yeah, not not 45. Not not there, you know. Uh, said she had glasses and a black coat and a hat and was carrying a suitcase or box about 24 inches square. 
Meanwhile, back at the hospital, little Jimmy is talking some more. He tells police that he saw his mother hit his big sister while they were picking flowers. He also talks about having two fathers, and he mentions both the names Chris and George. So, George Christie. Mm-hmm. And he also was very young when his biological father died. So, of course, he doesn't really have any memory of him aside from what he's been told. And he did say he liked George the best, but a neighbor later said that the neighbor who babysat them said that the children were afraid of George Christie. It doesn't seem like he was really a kid kind of person. I mean, you cannot be a kid kind of person and still not scare children. I don't have children. I'm not a huge kid person. I, do, do I terrify your children? No. Yeah. They terrify you much more. Exactly, yes. Yeah. But that's because they're your spawn. No, they are. They're evil. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, that's not to say that that's the one necessarily goes hand in hand with the other. And also, I'd like to point out, I did mention little Helen had been hit on the head. We're going to find out that little Jimmy had been hit on the head also. Concussions can really mess with your mem- memory. With your memories. With your memories. Those, those boob concussions. <laughs> those hurt. Yeah, they do. So no, but in all seriousness, uh, I have a, a family member who hit their head. Let's just say, ladies and gentlemen, do not try to sled ride down stairs. Um, and, I've done that a lot. Yeah. And uh, had a very bad concussion from it. And it took a couple days for the memory to come back of what even had happened before they hit their head. So I've never had a concussion. I have a built-in helmet. So I'm very Norwegian. And I, I do have a built-in helmet. I have never in my life had a concussion. I've put my head through a windshield. Wow. And didn't even know that I did it. Until the next day, I was like, oh, I must have done that with my head. <laughs> didn't feel it. Didn't hurt. Oh, well. I mean, why did the Vikings wear those helmets if they, they already had one built in? Well, horns are cool, yeah. Yeah, horns are cool. You got to admit. Yeah, it's, it's all fashion. So anyhow, yeah, I'm just saying, like, this kid, he's been through a lot. He's been through a traumatic experience. He also has a potential almost definite head injury. Yeah, so he's got a concussion, and he's talking about all this stuff, and he's like, I fucking want ice cream. Where's Joe? (laughs) Where's Joe? Joe, bring me my ice cream in a fire truck. (laughs) Well, and kids are basically tiny drunk people anyway. Yeah, yeah. You had a head injury in there, and it's like a tiny drunk person with maybe a couple of Xanax, too, just for funsies. Yeah, yeah, there you go. I don't don't blame him one bit, because he's like, what, four? Yeah. And has a concussion, and also probably really wants ice cream. Yeah. Absolutely. But he is sort of on top of things eventually. It takes some time. But after about a day or so, he's able to give the name and address of his nursery school. Gives his mother's name, Helen. And he's able to give his full name as Jimmy Tiernan. He also says that George and another man were at the train station when they got off the train, waiting with a shiny blue car. And then their mother took them into the woods, and then the last thing he remembered was her, uh, his mother hitting little Helen. So that we'll find out maybe, probably not true, but we'll get there. So by Monday, this is all over the papers. As you can imagine, this is a story that really tugs at the heartstrings when you had this little boy who managed to survive beyond the odds 
And so there's pleas of, do you know these children? A picture of Jimmy in the hospital with his head all wrapped up in bandages. And a sketch of little Helen with her bobbed hair and her dress. And this becomes known as a Babes in the Woods murder. It's not the first. It won't be the last. There are just cases where when children are found dead in the woods, it becomes known as Babes in the Woods until you can get identification. Kind of like, you know, little Jane and John Doe's. I actually have, directly behind you on the bulletin board there, a newspaper from when friend of the show and friend from uh, my life since second grade, Jamie, sent us a newspaper she'd found at like a, a flea market or something that had a tale of a Pennsylvania crime that had happened. And it was a Babes in the Woods murder that mm-hmm. happened not too far from here. That was in uh, one of our old tiny crimes, I believe. So yeah, Babes in the Woods. And if you're thinking about a recent news item you've heard regarding a Babes in the Woods murder, stick around till the end. (laughs) I've got a little bit on that. This is not that one, though. So, it's all over the papers. People are flooding the hospital with toys for Jimmy. In one particularly, uh, somehow both heartwarming and horrifying picture, a clown comes to visit him. He really liked the clown. He did really like the clown. I didn't like the clown. Yeah, well, most adults don't. But he really seemed to like the clown. And he did want a fire truck. He really wanted a fire truck. And the paper's like, maybe somebody will send him one today. Hint, hint, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Get on it, people. We've got a traumatized kid here. Get him his damn fire truck. Well, and the one story broke my heart because I think he said he wanted a fire truck and his sister. Yes, yes. he, He did want his sister back. He very much was not... He's four. He's not grasping the idea of death. Or he's five at this point, I think. But he's not grasping the idea of death. He's lost his father, but he wasn't old enough to remember. Yeah. And, like, so my, my kids currently are are four and six. They're about to turn five and seven. And they are each other's worst enemy and best friend. Mm-hmm. And so tomorrow, I'm splitting them up. And I'm putting them at different babysitter's house. Because sometimes I just need to get them away from each other so they don't kill each other. And they are both so heartbroken that they will not be together tomorrow. (laughs) They have punched each other in the face at least four times today. They have told on each other. They've been sent to their rooms five different times. And they're heartbroken that they don't get one day together. To play with slash torture one another. It blows my mind, but it's siblings, and Mm -hmm. and especially at this age, he's probably like, I want a fire truck and my sister. Yeah. Where's my sister? Or as Max says, my shister. (laughs) That's so cute. I love it. I want my shister. Now, before any names are announced in the press, there are parents who have missing children who think that this might be their kids. Oh, man. Yeah, there's one instance of, well, I mean, just wait until you hear it. Uh, I'm sure there were more, like, heart-wrenching stories, but this is the one the paper decided to run with. A man, quote, who thought they were his children, whom he had not seen for a number of years, later found that his children were safe with their mother in Brooklyn. Oh, my God. You know, a telephone. I mean. Do you not go see them on the weekends? Like. I just haven't seen them in years. They just kind of disappeared. And I don't know what happened to them. Maybe maybe it's this, this kid that's really famous in the hospital that people keep on sending toys to. I don't know. A little effort there, man. A little effort. Right. Clearly, he's not sending any sort of child support checks. (laughs) He doesn't even know where they are or that they're alive. Helen Tiernan, she goes to her children's nursery 
and tells the superintendent that she's found a place for her kids to stay for a little while. They're going to be staying with her brother in New Jersey. This is all over the papers. Everybody has seen this. The superintendent of the school has seen this picture of this little boy in the hospital. And even with the bandages, she's like, that is Jimmy Tiernan. When Helen Tiernan comes in, grown-up Helen Tiernan, obviously, the superintendent's like, ah, yeah, uh, stall, 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 (laughs) staller, calls the police, manages to keep Helen Tiernan there until the police could get there, and then they took her in for questioning. Yeah, I imagine she's just like, you know what, I'm going to need you to fill out some forms in triplicate that you are pulling your kids from the daycare. It's just common practice. If they're not going to be here, uh, here, here's those forms. Oh, you need that pencil sharpened. Yeah. I'm just going to go in the other room and sharpen it. I'll be right back. You just stay put. I might have to stop in the bathroom real quick just to powder my nose. I'll be, I'll be two, five, seven. Um, what time did the police say they'd get here? 20 minutes. I'm going to boil some water on the kettle for tea. <laughs> <laughs> Let's have some tea, Helen. Helen is at the police station, and she tells them a story about this picnic out in the country. She said, We were sitting in the woods Saturday afternoon when a big, poorly dressed man burst out of the bushes and ran toward me. I ran away and hid in another part of the woods. When I thought he had gone, I returned and found both my children missing. I then returned to Manhattan. Okay. What? Huh? What? As a mother, I can tell you that I uh, am part grizzly bear. And if you run at me and my kids, I am not backing down and I am not running away. And only one of us will be leaving alive. I'm not even a mother. I just have a cat and some ducks and a husband. You touch a single fur, feather, or hair on any of their heads... Same goes. One of us is leaving alive, and it's not you. (laughs) And that's not even a mother, so this makes absolutely no sense. No, absolutely not. Like, somebody runs at me and my kids. I'm not leaving them behind. Like, And just hopping on the train for the, like, two whatever hour drive back. I couldn't find my kids, so I just went home. They're just some stranger ran and grabbed them, and it's, you know, it's whatever. It's... Shit happens, I guess. I don't know. They were going to turn up eventually. Right? They'll find their way home if they really want it. If it's meant to be. (laughs) Oh. So. In another version, she said that he beat her children and cut their throats. Then he took the kids in his car and drove away. Which, if she's saying that, that means that she was just hiding in the bushes and watching this horror show the whole damn time. Just totally fine with it. Still making zero sense. The police brought in the superintendent of the nursery, who we mentioned before. They also bring in the superintendent of Helen Tiernan's apartment building, as well as a man who was kept anonymous for the moment, but who we can all guess was George Christie, the ex-boxer, Greek cafeteria worker, and not-child-wanting boyfriend. The superintendent of the apartment building told a really interesting story. He said that, okay, so he had the main telephone for the whole building in his home. He lived in an apartment in the home. 
a call came in for Helen Tiernan. And so she takes the call. Soon afterwards, he witnessed a man driving up to the building. Helen Tiernan and her children got in the car and the four of them drove away. Now, because she was behind on her rent, the superintendent was suspicious. He thought maybe she was going to try and pull a fast one, move out without notice and without paying the back rent. So he, when she came back, spied on her. The day after the body was discovered in the woods and Jimmy was taken to the hospital, the super said that Helen went to the basement. He followed her, watched through a crack in the door. Quote, she had some bundles with her. I saw her pull open the door of the big incinerator and throw the bundles in. It was very strange because most tenants leave all their bundles in their garbage cans. I looked in after she had gone. There seemed to be only a few scraps of clothes and some toys and Christmas things. I didn't think much about it until she was arrested. She burned their toys. Unless somebody else was burning their children's toys for whatever reason. But honestly, like, no, she... how many terrible people live in this building? She was like, I'm just going to get rid of all traces of the fact that I have kids. Essentially, yes. The police also noticed that Helen Tiernan had some cuts and bruises on her, some lacerations. So they confront her with everything they found out from the super, everything they found out from the anonymous man, from the nursery superintendent. And she confesses. To an extent, but we'll get there. Because I want to save the confession for when she really confesses. <laughs> she sort of confesses, but at this point, she's also implicating George Christie as well. She tells the detectives about their living arrangement. Essentially, when Christie would stay over, and that was frequent to the point that she almost considered him as living there, this is a one-bedroom apartment. All four of them would share the bed. He slept on one side. Helen slept in the middle, baby Helen slept on the other side, and Jimmy slept across the foot of the bed. And she said, she as in Helen Tiernan, grown up Helen Tiernan. It's so confusing. Why do, what is why that? Do, yeah, why do we have to do it? <sighs> it was very uncomfortable. We just couldn't put up with it. So I had to get rid of the kids, don't you see? We just couldn't put up with it. I had to get rid of the kids, don't you see? As if it's just common logic or, you know, like, obviously. I mean... This was the answer to get rid of the children one way or the other. I tried one way. I tried the other. And so then there was only, you know, uh, one thing left. Yeah, it was either I could be lonely or find a different man or I could get rid of my kids. And it seemed like the obvious answer. Really? I mean, the choice is clear here. Ugh, told you you were going to hate her. Always pick the new man, guys. Always. <laughs> oh, yeah, of course. Obviously. Just throw out the whole ass man and find another. I mean, she was so determined. She had the kids calling George Christie dad. They, they considered themselves having two dads. Their, their deceased father and George Christie, which just seemed to push him away more, obviously. Yeah, he didn't want kids. and Well, really, I think the issue is he didn't want her and he was trying to be nice and find excuses instead of just being upfront about it. I think he also liked getting some on the regular. Who doesn't? Yeah. yeah. Really? 
But he, he liked getting some, but he was like, I don't want this to be a whole thing. And when she's like, why? He's like, I don't know, because you have kids. And she took that ball and ran. But he also could have left at any point in time and been like, look, you have kids. That's going to be the situation forever. But he just kept on holding on to this dream of, you know, she can just pawn the kids off of some on someone else. It's the depression. Nobody wants anybody else's kids unless it's for nefarious purposes. But was he really the one... Like, was he actually saying that? Or yeah, was... we don't we don't know. Or was she just like, well, he must not like my kids. Guess I should do something about that. Yeah, because she could have just taken that ball and ran. He hinted, like, he stepped on a Lego or something and was <laughs> like, fucking kids. <laughs> and then she was like, yeah, fuck them kids. Yeah, we really don't know to, to what extent what happened was a result of anything he said. Or to what extent anything that happened was a result of what was going on in her mind. How she perceived it. Yeah. yeah. So we really, like, that That can be our, our stance, essentially, is we don't know. It's all rampant speculation. <laughs> it's been a little while. I always say it's been a little while when it's been, like, four episodes or something. But, you know, time is a thing and whatever. She is taken to be uh, charged and arraigned when she is charged with second-degree murder. For some reason, she faints. It takes five minutes to get her awake to move on to the arraignment. And so the arraignment happens. They ask for her plea. At first, she tries to plead guilty. And they said, you can't. You cannot plead guilty to a second degree murder charge. And at first I was like, what? Yes, you can. People do it all the time. You can't or they shouldn't allow you to plead guilty at an arraignment before all the evidence is in because the charge might be incorrect. Maybe it should be first-degree murder. Maybe it should be manslaughter. That's just what people have come up with in the couple of days. It's been like four days since the bodies have been found, if that. And so they don't have all the information in. They're going with their best guess as to what the charge should be. So I didn't quite realize that because you've heard of people pleading guilty eventually, but that's after all the evidence has been pulled in and maybe there's enough evidence against them that they're finally like, okay, can we just figure out a plea bargain? Because this is not looking pretty and uh, so is your bill. So <laughs> so yeah, it, it, at first I was like, what? You have to be able to, but it's just a matter of you can't do it then. The newspapers didn't explain it very well, but yeah. you know. Some, Timing is not right. Some random legal site explained it well enough. So, but she said... I am guilty and I want to plead that way. It just took some time for them to convince her, like, no, now is not the time. Later. Later is fine. Later is okay. Not right now. At one point, while both of them were being arraigned, because they brought George Christie in too, she whispered to him, will you promise me if I tell this story, you will take care of the boy? Do you not get it? <laughs> No, she does not. Oh, man. Nobody could hear his answer, but man, of all the things that are lost to history, whew, that's one of the big ones I regret. You know, the Library of Alexandria and whatever the hell George Christie said when she muttered that batshit insane stuff to him after everything. You just killed your children or attempted to kill both of them. Killed one and attempted to kill the other for this man because he didn't want children. And you're like, so you want my kid? that I wasn't able to kill. She says, okay, I'll plead not guilty, but now I want to tell the true story of what happened. The true story. 
So she says that they wouldn't let her tell the full story before. They just kept on telling her that George was married, that he talked shit on her, that a car with his license plate had been spotted at the scene, and Jimmy said he saw George there. And she said, quote, I had to say that, that he was involved, to keep them from bothering me because I couldn't talk no more. Mm-hmm. They will badger you. <laughs> that, that is essentially an interrogation technique that is kind of uh, frowned upon because they will badger you to get the exact answer that they want until you say it you're, because you're just so tired. I mean, she does, she does admit that she had a large part to play, if not the whole entire part to play. So yeah. we can't really frown on her for saying, oh, well, she was lying about that. I kind of think she was telling the truth. And George did have a decent alibi. He had worked from 6 a.m. to 4 p.m. that day. Remember, they showed up around Yapank Avenue around 11, 19 a.m. So that's right in the middle of that. No way he could have been there. Exactly. And then after that, even, he went to help a friend paint his car. Helen said, everything Jimmy says is true. Almost everything, anyhow. I had to get rid of them. They were in the way. From the Madeira, I know, right? This entire episode is just deep sigh. From the Madeira Tribune, detectives listened to Mrs. Tiernan's confession that she loved George Christie so much that she had agreed to sacrifice her children to make room for him in her small apartment. Which that particular account does certainly cast some of the blame on him by saying she had agreed to sacrifice. But she said, quote, I did it. I did it myself. I hate that she is a girl after mine own heart and that she made a list. She made a list of the things that she would need to take with her on this quote-unquote picnic. That was a knife, scissors, a hatchet, a bottle of gasoline, and sandwiches. Well, at least she remembered the sandwiches. Right? <sighs> Murder is, is hungry work. <laughs> oh, God. So they took the train out to Brookhaven. The kids had actually boarded there the previous year, and there were some accounts that maybe she had been on a vacation there in that general area the last year. Two men saw her and the children on the road and asked if she needed help. She replied, no. Jimmy pointed to their car and said, hey, that's George's car. But Helen said, no, it's not, and George isn't here. So that's where we get this whole idea of two daddies being there and a George and a Chris and maybe George giving him ice cream, a lot of, like we said, post-concussion stuff, traumatic stuff, and him just being a little kid who thinks that every man in a shiny car is his, you know, supposed daddy. Yeah, but you know what? So my son does that too. Like, he'll recognize cars that look like other people's cars. And so if he sees a white SUV, he'll be like, is Papa here? And it doesn't matter what kind of SUV, it's the same color and kind of the same body shape. And he goes, well, it's Papa. Yeah, they're making very loose associations based on maybe one thing, like a color or size, something like that. And then they immediately associate it with something they're familiar with. Because we all do that. We like to associate things we're familiar with. I took a picture of my car's twin when I was at a stoplight the other day. I was like, I feel like I'm in the Matrix. There's a glitch. <laughs> I, was, I told my car, I was like, hey, Tiggy, there's, there's your twin. <laughs> Eater. <laughs> yeah, oh, God. 
Oh, I think Eat Your Twin is really a deep cut for old-timey crimey. If you know it, you know, okay? That's all I'm going to say. I'm, I'm not going any further. So, then she proceeds to explain pretty matter-of-factly, and I'm just going to warn you up front, this is going to get unpleasant. Yeah. Repeating somebody's words, how they killed their children, not my favorite thing to do. But here we go. Maybe fast forward, like, I don't know, one minute. 30 seconds if you are not up for hearing this, which don't blame you. I cut Helen's throat first. I hit her twice on the back of the head with an axe handle. Then I cut Jimmy's throat. I hit him three times. There's the head injury. Mm -hmm. She said she moved Helen away from Jimmy, dragging her by her feet, and took their shoes, coats, and hats off to hamper identification. Then she said, quote, I poured gasoline on them from a bottle I brought with me. I lit the gasoline. Helen came to for a minute. She crawled a little way, about five or six feet. Then she lay still. Jimmy didn't move. I threw some leaves and weeds over them. Then I went back to the railroad station. She said that she actually couldn't go through with it as she had planned and really catch Jimmy on fire. She just kind of figured he must be dead then. And so she ran off. The coroner's report at this point, now that a more extensive examination has been performed, indicates that little Helen did not die of the slashes to her throat, but rather of the burns. There is also something in the report that little Helen might have lived had she gotten medical attention. Now. You wanted to talk about what grown-up Helen did that day. And it is kind of unclear because I saw a couple different accounts. But there is a beach party. Mm-hmm. There's uh, a sleepover. <laughs> um, there's some adult stuff. There's even some, uh, some marriage hinting and a ring. Oh, I wanted to note something real quick before we get into this. This spot where she uh, committed the murders... Remember how her mother was committed to an asylum? Mm-hmm. It's about uh, 16 miles down the road. She would have passed within like three or four blocks of it on the train if the tracks are still the same today as they were back then. Wow. Yep, yep. And this is over 65 miles from her apartment. So she's closer to the spot where her mother was held in an asylum for five years than she is to her home. I don't think that was necessarily planned. I think it's just some weird coincidence. And 16 miles is, you know, still a distance. It's not like she, you know, killed her children on the doorstep of the asylum. I just didn't like how close it was. It felt... This is for you, Mom. Yeah, it felt very uncomfortable. And so she either met George Christie at Jones Beach or she went to his place and then they partied at Jones Beach the next day. And she told him that she had boarded the children at a home in Long Island. On Sunday, he started talking about, you know, how maybe now they could find a better apartment, maybe even get married sometime. There was mention of a ring, but it was really unclear whether that was something she had prior to that. They were just like, oh, that ring. Did George Christie give that to you? And she's like, yes. And then they moved on. (laughs) I was like, no, let's back up a minute. Come on. Hold on. Maybe they're vague on purpose. Although they've got everything they need. They don't need to worry about that. Do you have what her friends said, how she behaved at the beach? I had the gay, rollicking party. 
and that she was so happy and giggling and laughing that she didn't even need to drink. Yes, yes. They said that she was happy and giggled contentedly as she sat on the sands of the boardwalk and posed for pictures. And would you like to describe the picture of her and George Christie that we have from, I believe it's that day. Everything I've seen indicates that it was from that day. So this picture is, and I'm bringing it up so I can stare at it. And it'll be on our social media over on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. That's uh, uh, old-timey crimey everywhere. So you get some George Christie nipples, and he he is topless and showing off his lack of muscle, and she is basically sitting on his thigh with both legs in the air and her arms outstretched and this big smile on her face as they're just like, ha ha, look at us. It is infuriating to know what she had just done, and she is that happy and joyful and carefree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that picture is going to haunt my freaking nightmares. And also the fact that you said Christy nipples. Um, I had to. Yeah, yeah, those, those two things are going to haunt my nightmares together. I love that they call her the blonde widow in the caption of this picture, though, that I have in my hand. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> so, on the way out from the arraignment, uh, she... Walked to her car. You're going to enjoy this. She hid her face with her coat. And she had her face so thoroughly hidden that she couldn't really see what she was doing. And when she went into the car, she hid her head on the roof. Good. And then was stunned for a moment. So that oh, was... Oh, that stunned her? Yeah, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe we should have hit her with an axe. So they have the arraignment. Then she hits her head. Then they have the changed confession where she pretty much exonerates George Christie. And then they're both tossed back in jail. And basically, George Christie is just a few feet away in the next cell. He's being held as a material witness on 50000 bail, despite her clearing him. Now, that's $50,000 in 1937 money. Yeah, that's a lot of money. Mm-hmm. That's almost $1 million today. So he'd have to scrape up the modern equivalent of about $100,000 to get on bail. And that's not happening. No. She wow. is put on suicide watch. And it's said that her demeanor goes back and forth between wooden-faced and hysterical. She kept saying she wanted to see Jimmy, but then she said she knew he shouldn't see her. And then we come to the funeral for little Helen. Oh, my heart. I know. It's absolutely... Oh. <sighs> So they have little Helen's funeral. The only mourner is her maternal grandfather, adult Helen's father, George Smith, 63. The Patchogue Advance tells us that one wreath of flowers was the only decoration about the small coffin, but the Suffolk City News tells us that Helen Tiernan had a blanket of blue delphiniums sent to cover the coffin. She also paid for the funeral and the coffin, requesting that it be a nice funeral with plenty of flowers, even though she knew they'd kind of have to cheap out on the casket. And it was reported that she had life insurance policies on both children, although we don't know exactly how much for. And then as for the grandfather mourning his young granddaughter, as the old grandfather plucked a white carnation from the wreath to toss into the grave, several camera flashlights went off. Several hours earlier, Mr. Smith had visited his daughter, 
Mrs. Helen Tiernan, in her cell. So when her father visited her, he asked why she'd done it. She said, I must have been crazy. And after that, he left. While she knew the funeral was going on, she kept on muttering, I'll probably have to go to the electric chair for this. That's all about you, isn't it? It is. And then that's the problem, is it's all about her. Mm-hmm. Really, that's when you, when you break it all down. We're going to be going to trial here, and the case is going to go to the grand jury. At that point, the Suffolk City News has this to say. So perfect a noose of evidence has been drawn about Mrs. Tiernan's neck that a plea of insanity is the only loophole left. They're really taking this metaphor far. They really are. And that will no doubt be seized upon by the defense. Her mother was for five years a patient in Central Islip State Hospital, and that fact will no doubt be made much of by the defense, as well as her unbelievable conduct in going on a gay beach party the afternoon following the crime. However, none of the authorities and officers who have come in contact with Mrs. Tiernan believe she is insane. <coughs> Casey Anthony? <laughs> yeah, right? We've seen this. She was given mental tests to determine her fitness for trial. And you remember when I mentioned some current events at mm-hmm. the top of the episode? Those actually come into play here, at least two of them. Okay. She'd been reading the papers, and the papers had given her a little bit of sick, sick inspiration. I read in the newspapers about the explosion and the burning of the airship on May 6th. The newspapers wrote the details on May 7th, 8th, and after that. Many bodies were inside the ship and were burned, and it was said they could not be identified. This gave me the idea of killing the children and burning them to avoid being identified. So there's the Hindenburg. And then there was the case we mentioned of the two teenagers who killed the girl's mother. That was what gave her the idea to use the axe. So all this stuff that she's seen in the news in just a couple weeks is just boiling and bubbling in her head and forming into this horrifying plan. They had some of the witnesses who had seen her at the train station that morning and then close to the murder scene come to the jail and identify her. For some reason, we have three children, 12, 8, and 7, coming to also do the identification. Yeah, that's that's Helen's mommy. I mean, well, I mean, they didn't know Helen. They were just children who were in the area and saw her. Oh. But there's plenty of other people who saw her. We really don't need this. We don't need to involve more children in this murder case. No, I think why we're, not? We're, Let's just traumatize everybody. Right? Yeah. Here you thought we were full up on traumatized kids. Nope, here comes some more down the pipeline. It's like a water slide of traumatized children. (laughs) Next. Wait, wait, wait. Next. (laughs) There was also the guy in the car whom little Jimmy had mistaken for George Christie. He stepped forward and told his story of seeing Helen and the kids on the road and offering them a ride. Now, to her credit, I guess... Helen's not trying to hide anything. The DA takes this man down to identify Helen at the jail. And she says, aren't you the man who backed up his car to where we were walking? She did the identifying for him. Yeah. (laughs) She's like, no, I'll take care of this. I got it. I got it. I remember you. Yeah. Jimmy was still in the hospital one month after the attack when his mother's trial began. Or really, as it's going to turn out, about half a trial. 
The prosecution spent three days putting on its case with all the evidence that we've just talked about, the witnesses, the confession, all of these things. There's so much. It really is a noose of evidence as much as they belabored that metaphor. And then with a former Supreme Court justice representing her, they just give up. And she pleads guilty to the charge of second-degree murder, which she was really, really freaking lucky to get. Insanely, stupidly lucky. Well, and she was trying to plead guilty to that immediately anyway. Yeah, I think she knew. I think she was like, yep, yeah, no, please plead guilty to this before you decide to up it to, you know, like first degree. She has a mandatory sentence of 20 years to life with the possibility of parole after 13 years and four months with good behavior. Why do they even call it mandatory? It's technically 13 years and four months to life. No, like mandatory <laughs> should be 20 years minimum. And then parole is possible. Not mandatory, but seven years before the actual mandatory minimum is the actual minimum. It's very weird. So the prosecution accepted the plea. The district attorney said that while her mental and physical condition were not great and her upbringing had been admittedly turbulent, quote, the line is very dim between sanity and insanity. I believe she is sane, but dull. He's calling her stupid, BTW. Yep. I believe that with acceptance of her plea of second-degree murder, justice will be served. He called her dull a few times. That was like his favorite thing. Dull, normal mind. Yeah, it came up in the uh, medical reports of her, you know, mental fitness as well, too. <laughs> that the dull was just the word most frequently applied to her by these men. George Christie was facing possible deportation. But regarding what happened to Helen, he said, I feel sorry for Helen. I'm sorry she got in trouble, and I'm sorry I got in trouble. But what happens, happens. Um, can we, okay, so over on the Patreon, we decided that, you know, we've had this idea of getting a time machine. Yeah. And going back and kicking people in the balls from history who just generally say things we don't like or place ads in old-timey newspapers in a way that is jarring and upsetting. Uh, things like that. Yeah, he just made the list. He just made the list. Yeah, he's going on the spreadsheet. George Christie, welcome. We're coming for you. Yeah, and your balls. We can go back and, and give her a kick, too. <laughs> That's absolutely yeah. fine, and I think we should. He just, right in the memories. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for the memories. So very soon after the murder, there was... Okay, this gets confusing. The papers were calling him an uncle. He was 24 years old, and it seems like he was maybe James Tiernan's brother, James being the father. But his he was orphaned at age five and adopted by the McMasters. Isn't that weird? So it was a brother of little Jimmy's dad. Yeah. And yeah, he was placed in an orphanage at age five, adopted by the McMasters. And he's been married for three years. So, yeah. James was the son of Mr. and Mrs. William Tiernan. And as far as I know, they were still alive at that point, but... I don't think they were. They would have come to their grandbaby's funeral. That's true. That's true. Oh, so, well, so he is the son of William Tiernan and Margaret McMaster. And McMaster was the name of the people who took in his quote-unquote brother. So... I think he's more of maybe a cousin that was maybe treated like a brother, is my, is my gut feeling on this. Judging by what I've seen, 
Just because it's not like they say he was he was taken in by their parents. No, but it says he was adopted by Mrs. James McMaster, which wouldn't have been James's dad because it was Tiernan. But yeah, his dad's it, name doesn't change. James's mom, her maiden name was McMaster. So I'm thinking uh, he was taken in maybe by some of one of her siblings, like a, her brother. Yeah, so like and then maybe when, even like brought up in the same household because they did that a lot then. Yeah, and so they were like brothers because they were you know kind of close to the same age. Yeah, it's it's really strange. That's, it is strange, yeah. But anyhow, uh, he was a gas station attendant, was married to a telephone operator, and they had no children. And um, we'll get to that in a second. I just want to real quick mention that I could not find any information on what happened to George Christie after this. Especially if he, the threat of deportation was hanging over his head. He was probably trying to keep his name out of the papers. He was exonerated fully in the murder case, though. But we don't know if he ended up being sent back to Greece or stuck around. Really, he's very hard to track down. So, in September of the year of the murder of little Helen, Jimmy, four months after he'd gone to the hospital... It was noted that not a dime had been paid toward the hospital bill, which came to a whopping $290, which is $5,700 today. But still, he was in the hospital for at least a month, if not longer. I don't know exactly when he was released. Do you? No, I don't. Yeah, it wasn't really in the paper. I think they were trying to keep that, that particular moment quiet because he might have been overwhelmed. But yeah, still, $5,700 for a month in the hospital, that's a steal these days. Right. So there was also a report that a New York paper had raised $13,000, which is $260,000 today. And that did uh, find its way to somebody, you know, to take care of Jimmy soon after that. And he was for a little while still under the care of the Children's Aid Society. It stated that he'd been put into a good school and a new home would be chosen for him with a great deal of care. It doesn't seem that he was adopted by the uncle slash second cousin, whatever that would be, of uh, James Tiernan, his father. What did you find on him in the future? So I thought he was, actually. I, I'd seen an article where it seemed like it was very much going to happen. It wasn't official, but, like, there was a picture of him kissing his new mommy. Mm-hmm. So other than that, I have, uh, he actually lived until 2014. Okay, so that's what I have. And then I was able to find an obituary for him. And that's where I got a little confused because some of the details were a little different than what we know. For instance, he was born in, I believe that obituary said Massachusetts, which was where he eventually died. Whereas our Jimmy Tiernan was born in New York. It also had a different birth month. Those were really the only differences, and those can easily be forgotten or fudged or whatever happened. Or changed. Exactly, for, for good reason. You know, if he did change those, he kept the name Jimmy Tiernan. So what we have is if this man, who is, according to Find a Grave, attached to James Tiernan Sr., Helen Tiernan's husband who died, then here is his life's path after all of this. He graduated high school joined the Navy, and served in the Korean conflict. He graduated college, worked for Engelhard Industries for 25 years, married in 1965, 
stayed with his wife, Alice, for 49 years until his death in 2014, as you said, at age 82. And he was buried in her family plot. There is currently no death date uh, on her name on that plot. So as far as we know, she's still around. She was three years younger than him. So uh, they appear to have had no children as far as I can see. There was no survived by children listed. It just said he had lots of nieces and nephews. And that's uh, that's what we've got on Jimmy. Okay, so two things, though. One, I really hope that's true. Yes, it seems like he lived a really, really good life. And two, I completely understand the choice with his family history to not have kids. It is understandable. Because at one point, his wife might have been like, do you want to have a baby? And he's like, yo, that is a deal breaker for me. <laughs> Absolutely not. My mother, her mother, crazy is just, no, no, no kids. No. And you just feel, even if you don't think about any sort of genetic trails being followed or anything like that, you just feel like almost there's something haunting this family and just traumatizing generation after generation. Like, even if you're, you're not thinking about mental illness, you know, it's entirely possible for all we know that Helen Tiernan's mother was not really mentally ill. She could have been thrown in the asylum for reading too much. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so we don't really know in that day and age. She read a book. She's a witch. <laughs> Burn the witch and then send her to the asylum. Just her ashes. That's fine. We'll take it. We don't know. We don't have any diagnoses. It's really all very murky. But I, with that kind of generational trauma going on, yeah, no, I see it. I totally see it. Makes sense. Or maybe they just couldn't have any. Maybe their reproductive choices are their own business. <laughs> maybe we should leave yeah. it at that. At the end of the day, that's fact. At the end of the day, that is the way it should be, yes. But he did seem to have a nice life with Alice. They seemed very happy together, as far as we can tell. As for Helen. She did manage to get her less than 20 years. She was paroled after just 14 years in prison in 1951. And she told the paper she wanted nothing more than to see little Jimmy again. You bitch. Fuck you. Right? As far as we know, that didn't happen. But really, she vanished from the public eye as much as he did. If it did happen, it was kept under wraps or it was from afar or something like that. As far as death, the best we can come up with is there is a grave for a Helen Tiernan in the same cemetery as her young husband, James, was buried in. There's no picture of it on Find a Grave. There's just like a plot number. And whoever is in that grave died in 1967. There's also no birth date. So we have very little to go on there. If it was her, she was in her mid 50s when she died. That's still too long for her. It really is. Do you have anything else on this Babes in the Woods case before I go just a real quick overview of the other Babes in the Woods case that came up in the news? Nope, by all means. Okay. So, just this past week, there were some developments in a case where bodies had been discovered in 1953 which is our current start here year, or end here year, actually, rather. <laughs> Don't go past this line unless you're Amber and you're feeling spunky. <laughs> so that case, 
it was two boys who were found dead in the woods in Vancouver, Canada that year, murdered by a hatchet. They had been there for probably, I, I meant to write this down, but I didn't, I think uh, five years-ish, maybe a little bit longer. They were finally, just this past week, five days ago as we are recording this, identified as half-brothers David and Derek Dalton, ages six and seven. After 70 years, these boys have names. That's awesome. That is awesome. In this case, it was believed that the mother was also the culprit, although at this point she's been dead for a quarter of a century. So we'll never know, but it was a relative of theirs who submitted their DNA, you know, did a DNA test and everything and started reaching out and trying to figure out where those boys had gone because they knew that there was this story of these boys and the mother had said, oh, well, social services came and took them. But there was no record of it. There was nothing that they could find to verify that. And so this relative of theirs was part of the reason that law enforcement was like, oh, crap, we got a match here. <laughs> and so you have the, the DNA and genetic gumshoe work and a relative who just is like, you know, I know it was 70 years ago, but damn, I want to find out what happened to these boys. And I want to know if it's down in the woods. And it was. So a really amazing story and just crazy that we're solving cases that are 70, even longer than that. They were found in... 1953, which is 70 years ago, almost. Okay, 69, fine, whatever. That, but that's awesome. And they, you know, were murdered before that. So we are solving cases. The extent of time that we are covering that has passed is growing and growing and growing with the cases that we're able to solve. And it's just, I say we like I'm part of it, I'm not. But it's just so incredible to me. When I read stuff like that, I have so much hope for cases like The Boy in the Box and Tam and Should and all these cases that are still mysteries. Hell, maybe even Jack the Ripper. Who the hell knows? Long shot, but... That's a long shot. <laughs> That's a super long shot. I long ago accepted that that was never going to be solved. But, you know, if I woke up in the morning and it was all over the news, I wouldn't be upset. So, would you like to cleanse your palate with a horrible recipe? Let's do it. Okay. This is a... Uh, Vegetable omelet for luncheon. This was in sort of a segment that was single dish meals that you can just have like some bread with and it'll, it'll cover you, you know? Maybe for more than two people, I would, or more than one person at least, I would hope with this recipe. So vegetable omelet for luncheon. Brown one tablespoon minced onion in two tablespoons butter. Add one cup diced celery half cup diced raw carrots, one cup shredded string beans, half cup fresh peas or limas with water enough for cooking. Cover and cook until tender. Drain, season with plenty of butter, pepper, and salt. Make a plain omelet of four eggs and three tablespoons of milk or light cream, beaten together until very light. Place the hot cooked vegetables on the omelet, fold and serve on a hot plate garnished with buttered toast strips and parsley. If you like, Thicken the juice from the vegetable with equal parts of flour and butter blended and serve as a sauce with the omelet. There is no cheese in this omelet. Nope. Somebody needs to go right to hell with that. No fromage. <laughs> you, you must have cheese. You must have cheese. And why? I get that it's a vegetable omelet, but that's too many. That's carrots. All the vegetables. Peas. 
string beans, celery, onions. Calm down with the vegetables, for God's sakes, people. Jesus. But you know, like the one time I made, I made the vegan nacho cheese. Oh, that was amazing. Yes, that was delicious. Yeah, and that was made out of vegetables and nuts. So. Yeah, I know, but it's it's kind of an art. This is just throwing together everything you got in the yeah. kitchen. Which Anything it was, you have, just throw it in there, blend it up. The kids will never know. It was the depression. <laughs> so yeah. really, I think that was kind of the name of the game. If it's in the kitchen, toss it in. We're eating it. Not letting any food go to waste. So yeah, that was my crazy recipe. I also found a, a vegetable loaf that was just meatloaf with 10 different vegetables in it. And I was like... Once you get to that one pound of beef, I think we can no longer call this a vegetable loaf. No. <laughs> so I also found some horrible stuff that made me gag. So I was done with that for the week. I was like, okay, once I start gagging, I'm done with the recipes. Yeah. That's so fair. that is the Babes in the Woods case, or one of them, one of several, of uh, Helen Tiernan and her poor baby, Helen, and then uh, Jimmy, who got to lead a good life. And so more... Babes in the Woods over on Patreon. Uh, what were your show notes titled? Oh, uh, my show notes. Go to Helen. I like it. Mine were not that kind of babes. So Also good. Felt, felt right. Uh, so yeah, we have lots of good stuff over on the Patreon, like we mentioned at the top of the show. And you're not committed. I mean... Oh, that's bad choice of words. You're not... Oh, damn it. <laughs> to the asylum with you. You're not married to it. Uh, there is a way that you can, I need to set it up, that you can subscribe for a full year and get a percentage off. I just haven't gotten around to digging through Patreon's weird, archaic system and figuring that out, but I will. But if you just want to try it out for a month and binge for a month, we will shout you out on the show. You can leave next month. No hard feelings. Come back in six months when we've gathered even more material for you. Honestly, it's not something that you're, you're not standing at the altar and exchanging vows with us. You're just, you know, coming home with us from the bar one night. Yeah. It's just a fun time. We're just going to have some fun, you know, maybe have a drink, watch a movie. Cuffing season. <laughs> cuffing season. It is cuffing season. <laughs> so We're just going to snuggle up for a little while. It's going to be spring soon. You can go away. Exactly, yes. So there is that. We also mentioned the social media where there will be lots of pictures. I've just been putting up almost everything in one big batch on Fridays because... I just kind of figure if somebody's coming to the social media to, to look for it, if they're coming on a Friday when they are actually listening to the episode, they're only going to see one seventh. If I'm posting it throughout the week, so I just throw everything in one big batch as much as I can or, you know, in a couple of batches if it's on Twitter or whatever, where you're limited. So yeah, you can come over and see media related to the case, including that ridiculous picture of uh, George and Ellen either the day of or the day after she uh, murdered one of her children and left the other one for dead. Good stuff. Yeah. Uh, there's merch. There's the new treacherous heart design that available in a wide variety of items over on Redbubble. Redbubble.com slash oldtimeycrimey. So you can come over and take a look at that. And uh, I know I have more bullshit I am running out of energy. Yep. This one went longer than I expected, too. So, what you doing this week? Uh, working until I die. Um, That's not good. We need you here for this next week. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, working until next week when I come back for more. There you go. That's, I, I have nothing. I really, that's all I'm doing. Yeah. I might make meatloaf, actually. 
there you go. Yeah, you can use that wonderful recipe I posted in our friend group Discord. You keep ta- you keep talking about meatloaf, and it's something I never ever make, and now I really want fucking meatloaf, <laughs> and I can't stop thinking about it. So I feel like that's going to happen. She she has the most suggestible mind as relates to food. Whenever she's sitting in this chair in the studio of my house. She which had is... to hide the cookbook, so I would stop being like, oh my God, I want to croak madame. <laughs> and I want to specify that the studio is us in the guest room, but uh, the mattresses and box springs from the bed are just surrounding us because <laughs> we have an extra box spring. So that's our studio. <laughs> like We're in between two box springs, for God's sakes, but it works. I don't want people thinking we have too much money and then they won't want to give us any on the Patreon. I don't want them yeah. to think like, oh, no, they're wealthy enough. They have a studio. No, this is literally just um, my guest bed torn apart. And yeah, there's a box spring on either side of me and a mattress behind me. Yeah. I put a blanket over top of the mattress because I had a, a Zoom call the other day and I wanted the background to look nice. So I put a, the green blanket up so it didn't look like a mat- the bottom of a mattress. Which is very much dead beforehand, so. Yeah, now it just looks like a green blanket hanging on your wall. Exactly. Who doesn't have a green blanket hanging on their wall? I also have literally nothing going on this week that I can think of. It's that period of the winter where we're all just hunkering. I mean, we managed to have our girls' night. We did. Just last night in, you know, recording time. And that was fantastic and wonderful. That was a really good time. There was watching of um, penguins at the Kansas City Zoo live cam and being delighted as one of the caretakers was scooping snow onto the ice, and one of the little baby penguins was like, I want to ride, I want to ride, and then she scooped the baby penguin up and gave him a ride on the shovel. It was so cute. <laughs> I there, died. Yeah, there was also uh, drinking, foot wrestling, puzzles. There was foot wrestling. Amber really was all about the puzzle. She's, she's going to single-handedly complete the uh, the jigsaw puzzle that is making it impossible for me to dust my uh, coffee table because I put it out way too early and we have been spending no time on it. But Amber spent all the time on it because so she, she I loves love, puzzles. I do love puzzles and um, I also cannot have puzzles because I have children. So I come here and do puzzles. Yes, <laughs> and we like that because then you can complete it and we'll just say, hey, yay, we did it, yay! <laughs> So that is our week. It's kind of sounds boring, but I'm also going to be in the bath and doing some reading. So that's that's also in my plans because you approached me about a case that you want to do. And I was like, I just heard about that. So I might start working on that this week. And so that it could be soon because this is I'm not going to spoil it, but this is a, a, a woman who's kind of having a moment. Yeah. And so I'd like to get on that pretty soon. But the book associated with it is 500 pages long. So lots of time in the bath for me. There you go. All right. We hope you have a wonderful weekend and uh, we will see you next week with some more crimes from the times of old and a little bit of advice. Don't have a beach party after killing one of your children. I don't know. Do you have anything better and less depressing? Uh, Don't kill your children and also make sure the back door is locked. That was from the tiny though. Yeah, I know. That's how we got Oh. Don't kill people. How about if uh, how about if you're not compatible in a relationship because of something that is a, a very like undoable thing? Like I have children. Oh, oh no! The best piece of advice: throw the whole last man away. There you go. There you go. We found it. It took a little digging, but we got there. You know what? If you're not compatible, throw the whole last man away. For God's sakes. There's lots of others. Or you can go to Helen. So. We will see you next week. Bye. Bye. 
Our sources this week are brookhavensouthhaven.org, The New York Times, Mara Bobson in The Daily News, Find a Grave, The Mid-Island Mail, Fred Foster on The Wyndham Peak, Legacy.com, Bethany Lindsay on The CBC, and from the California Digital Newspaper Collection, The the Madera Tribune, and from Newspapers.com, The Brownsville Herald, The Times Union, The Daily Times, and The Daily News. Say prosecution one more time in case I need to go in and cut and paste that in there. Prosecution! Prosecution!